you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Isaiah chapter 66. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to look at the inside cover of the bulletin there where the Scripture is printed. You can also... <clears throat> You can also, um, Stephen left his coffee, so I was debating about drinking it, but um, <clears throat> sorry, that threw me off for a minute there. But, um, or is it Steve's coffee? Oh, it's his coffee. Okay. All right. Another, another plug for the coffee team there. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, we've also uh, got pew Bibles there. You can use those if needed. And so... You'll give me uh, just a moment. Isaiah 66. Uh, sorry, it took me a minute because a long time ago I said, well, we're going to preach Isaiah until God tells me to do something else or until we finish. Well, we made it. Congrats. So Isaiah was the evangelical prophet, the one who foreshadowed Jesus, the one who comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. He shows us a big God big enough to deal with our problems and the world's problems. So let's look to his word once again, praying that he would show us our sin, but also show us our savior. Isaiah 66, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like the one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you. And cast you out for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? <clears throat> For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. 
and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And I shall set a sign among them. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Ascends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good. What you do is good. Be good to us now. Give us your word. Give us the instruction that we need. Give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us, your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1916, Henry Ford said, history is more or less bunk. And then 13 years later, he opened an outdoor history museum. Apparently, Ford meant that history focuses too often on politicians, military heroes. It focuses on great men, forgetting the many other men and women who work together to make those great things happen. Indeed, history it's not just a summary of a few important figures. It's many stories woven together into larger themes. Yet sometimes you can't tell certain stories without talking about one figure. That's what brings us to Isaiah 66. You can't tell the history of Israel, of God's people, without talking about Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord of the covenant. The one who created the world, who called a nation to himself, who gave them a promised land and a law to guide them, who watched as they rebelled, who called them to repent, and who sadly watched as many of them never did. Yet that same Lord promised redemption to all who turn from sin and turn to their Savior. You see, Isaiah 66, it's about the end of History, as Tony so rightly indicated when he prayed from Revelation 21, the blessings and judgments to come. That's what we're talking about. And it's also about the author of history, the one who is driving it all to its final conclusion. 
History may at times seem pointless and boring. It may seem like only one man's perspective, depending which book you read. It may seem like bunk, but not when God writes the story because he will finish what he started. He will right every wrong. He will fulfill every promise. He will proclaim his kingdom to every coast, every corner of the globe. And if you think history is bunk, then remember that history is his story. Cliched, but true. It's God's story. And the final chapter has already been written. So spoiler alert, those who tremble at God's word, they will be satisfied. They will be comforted when God's kingdom finally comes in fullness. You see that unfold in three scenes this morning. The first one is this. The Lord will right every wrong. The Lord will right every wrong in verses one through six. He will oppose the proud, those in the wrong, and he will exalt the humble who are often wronged, waiting for God's grace, God's deliverance, his vindication. Look with me at verse one. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? His audience back then was waiting for the return from exile, the reestablishment of the temple of God's house. But Isaiah knew a few things. He knew that no temple could contain God. You see that here. He knew that a temple would do God's people no good if they failed to humbly worship him. Look at verse two. All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These are non-negotiables for following, for worshiping God. Humility, contrition, both penitence and dependence upon God and trembling at God's word. Westminster Confession of Faith 14-2, if you want the technical place to find it, says that we respond to each section of God's word accordingly. In other words, we obey the commands, we tremble at the threats, we embrace the promises. That's what God wants from his people. Of course, not everyone responds that way. Verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Maybe the problem was that God's people were only going through the motions or maybe God's people thought they could do whatever they wanted, murder, cruelty, unholy worship, either because they ignored cleanliness laws or worshiped idols. Maybe they said things like, our sin doesn't matter so long as we show up on Sunday, sing Amazing Grace, put a few dollars in the offering and have a, a holy snack. I'm talking about the bread and the cup. We could also talk about the coffee, but that's for another day. Bottom line, they did what they wanted. They chose their own ways. They acted selfishly. And the Lord wasn't fooled by any of it, by their outward obedience, because the Lord looks upon the heart. Verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them, God says, and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that 
in which I did not delight. God is not fooled. If you're running from God swiftly or slowly, subtly, notice this. He sees, he knows. If you're remaining and abiding with your Savior and your patience is running out, his isn't running out, but yours might be, then take notice as well because he hasn't forgotten you. Complain to God if you must, but do not complain about God because as Isaiah 65 said, before we call, he will answer. Verse five, hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, he's referencing them from verse two. Once again, he says, your brothers who hate you, cast you out for my name's sake. They have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. <clears throat> they're, they're mocking them, you see. Well, God is telling the mockers what they will get in the end. And he says, focusing on externals like the temple itself, focusing on externals without godliness. What will that get you? Caring about the beauty of the temple more than the beauty of God's word. Fearing men more than we fear God. All of that, it can result in, quote, partisanship or tribalism, whichever you prefer. Power struggles, theological hatred, religious persecution. Someone says, and isn't that what you see here? God's people hating their brothers, in, infighting among God's people, ridicule for godly behavior. But again, God sees all this. Praise the Lord, he sees because he tells his true servants, those who tremble at his word, that he will turn the tables on their tormentors, their taunters. It is they who shall be put to shame, he says. And that shame, that retribution, that recompense, it's going to be loud. It's going to be noisy, unmistakable one day. Verse 6, the sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Notice how Isaiah starts with current events for God's people, the image of their beloved temple that's laying in ruins at this moment, most likely for them. And then he shifts the focus to eternity. He shifts the focus to those who tremble at the word that they will be delivered. They will be vindicated. Their enemies will be put to shame. And he almost implies that the, the taunt of the ungodly, that that will come true. The Lord will be glorified. And those who taunt, they will see the joy of the humble and the contrite. That's going to be more clear in the next section. But what do you do with this section? First, we need to realize times have not changed much. Oh, yes, we have better technology and indoor plumbing and all those things now. But God's people were hated, even by their brothers back then. They were excluded. They were shunned. That's never fun, is it? It's not fun to not fit in. Not fun to be mocked for the hope that we have in God's promises. So what should we do? Should we try to be nicer? It's not a bad idea. The gospel, the gospel is offensive all on its own, but our personality shouldn't be. Should we try to fit in while still being faithful? Find common ground where we can with those who shun us. Again, that's, that's never a bad idea. But what if we are nice? What if we find common ground with unbelievers? Will we ever get to the point where this word from Jesus will become untrue? You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
Well, Matthew 10, 22, the first half of the verse, will it ever pass away? And neither will the second half of the verse, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Likewise, John 16, also still true. In this world, you will have tribulation. But again, the second half of the verse is too, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you can hold on to the end, it'll be worth it. And it will be a testimony to the world around you about what really matters. And keep in mind, God has not just saved us temporarily, merely to let us slip away later. That's one of the things we'll see next. After seeing how the Lord will right every wrong, we also see this. The Lord will fulfill every promise. He'll fulfill every promise. You see it in verses 7 through 14. Now, the enemies of God, the children of God, they almost get equal airtime in verses 1 through 6. But that's not the case in these verses. It's almost like God knows how our doubting hearts work. We hear about persecution, ridicule. We, we wonder if God is still going to care for us in the midst of all this. And so look at verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? I'd paraphrase it like this. Will God only halfway fulfill his promises? No, God will fully fulfill his promises. Yes, it's redundant, so remember it. His children, they will find shalom, the fullness of blessing, the absence of conflict. They'll find peace, they'll find joy, they'll find comfort in God's presence. Now, verse 6, again, it ends with that loud recompense for the enemies of God. Verse 7 almost seems to imply that it's loud because it's also swift, there's swiftness going on here in verses 7 and 8. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Metaphors are dramatic here, aren't they? The coming of the Lord, the good news for the people of God, the bad news for his enemies. It will be so sudden, this passage says, it'll be like a, a premature birth, something unexpected. In fact, she'll give, give birth before she ever realizes she's in labor. Before she's in pain, she'll deliver a son. We would never joke about childbirth because I'm a man and those jokes just aren't going to go well, right? Okay. <laughs> Kind of spoiled that there, but that's okay. This is impossible, right? This, this, this never happens. And, and, and you see, that's the point. This will be sudden. It'll be even miraculous. And that idea continues on in verse 8. This woman, this representative woman, whoever she is, she's giving birth to a whole nation. How can that be? Well, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But Barry Webb explains, out of Israel of the Old Covenant, Judged and rejected by God, emerged the church of Jesus Christ. Zion had given birth to a movement that could not be contained within ethnic, territorial, or political boundaries. Little spoiler for you here. We're going to look at Acts 1 next week. You're going to see some of that come to pass. That every tribe, tongue, and nation, all kinds of people would hear this good news and believe. They would tremble at God's word. God will fulfill every promise. 
It's so simple, but we need reminders of it. Because when you live in a fallen world for too long, you get what I call hopophobia. You're afraid to get your hopes up about various things. Now, I'm going to use one of my unsuccessful sports teams to make this point because you hear enough about the good ones. So tell me you get sick of it. But my dad's family is from Pittsburgh. I call it my adopted home city. And I root for all, or excuse me, most of their sports teams because the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team is it's, it's, it's a joke. It's a laughing stock. They've had four lousy winning seasons in the past 30 years. 26 out of 30 years, they have lost more games than they've won. But they're having a good season this year best in the National League at the moment. And I'm, I'm paying attention, you see, a little bit. I'm checking those box scores more often, but I'm afraid that the moment I get excited, they're just going to let me down. Ten-game losing streak is coming. That's, that's the fear. Now, if you want to go home and make fun of me, my twisted, delusional obsession with sports, that's fine. As long as you also do something else. Make fun of me for playing tricks with my own emotions if you want, but just ask yourself if you do the same thing with life. Tell me that you don't ever say things like this internally. I'm afraid to get a little excited about this good thing, these good things in my life, because I'm afraid that God is going to take it away. He'll take that blessing away. Now, I'm not saying that you will never have hardship and disappointment. I am saying that God has made certain promises that he will never cancel. Promises that are meant to bring you joy right now. The joy of anticipation at the very least. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. Why should we rejoice? Because as he goes on to say one day, all our needs will be taken care of. We'll be as secure as a newborn baby in her mother's arms. Look at verse 11. Rejoice. Why? Verse 11, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance, satisfied with a full belly, consoled by a mother's embrace, drinking deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And he changes metaphors briefly in verse 12, only to come back to the image of a baby once again. Halfway through verse 12, it says, And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. I got to bounce a baby on my knee this week. Side note, I've been told I'm better with babies than puppies. While I was bouncing said baby on my knee, only for a few minutes, at least for those few minutes, she, she didn't have a care in the world. I was, I was jealous watching it. And then, of course, the baby eventually, you know, cried and her mother came to take her back. You might say eventually that baby knew true comfort, the comfort of a mother once again. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Now, not everybody knows a mother's comfort like this. Sometimes these passages are hard to read. But in my experience, most of us, even if we don't know this exactly, we know what this should feel like. And knowing what it should feel like is enough to make us hunger for it, 
to desire it, to appreciate the promise. One day we'll rejoice, verse 14 says. One day we will know what peace like a river finally means. We will know what it means to have fullness of blessing. All of God's promises fulfilled. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, their yes in Christ. But isn't that, but isn't that part of the problem? The problem's not that we seek joy and satisfaction and comfort. You see, sometimes when our hopes are dashed, we play those tricks with ourselves. We tell ourselves, if I'll just stop hoping, if I just become cynical, life will be better. I won't be disappointed. See, the problem is not that we seek joy and satisfaction and comfort. It's that we seek it in the wrong places. And for now, I'm not going to tell you that various creature comforts in this life, that they're shallow, they're incomplete. They are, but why dwell on that? Instead, I just want to remind you that what Christ offers, what God has promised, which we find fulfillment of in Christ, what Christ offers is better. It's more satisfying, more lasting, more complete, more certain, more full. The Lord will right every wrong and the Lord will fulfill every promise. And that's not all. Thirdly, finally this morning, the Lord will proclaim his kingdom to every coast. He'll proclaim his kingdom to every coast. Verses 15 to 24. I won't read all of these verses as we go. I'll reference them and allude to them as we go. But there's many reasons why this section is important. I have, I think, four First, it serves as a warning once again for those who've rejected Christ. Second, it serves as motivation to go and proclaim for Christ's servants. Third, it explains, it, it reaffirms God's purpose among the Gentiles. That one I'll only cover very briefly. And then fourth, it reminds us why we worship God in the first place. Reminds us why we worship God in the first place. But first, this, this proclamation, first sub-point here, this proclamation serves is a warning for those who've rejected Christ. I got complimented last week on my fire and brimstone. I, I said thank you. It was genuine. My only additional thought about that is this. Make sure you, all of you, make sure you hear the warnings and the gospel. Both of them. Both of them are important. We may be predisposed to only hear one of them. But for now, warning. We can't ignore the warnings. They're here. They're unmistakable. Verse 15 and 16, it says, God is coming. There's going to be fire. Fire, fury, anger. Those words get mentioned six times in those two verses, along with words like rebuke, whirlwind, sword, slain. And then verse 17, it mentions those same fertility cults that Isaiah condemned last chapter, as well as the eating of unclean foods and a whole lot more. Alec Moitier sees a contrast here. Early in the passage, it talks about men who tremble at God's word. And he says, those who no longer tremble at his word, quote, it is not that they then believe nothing, but that they will believe anything. Gardens, pigs, rats included. And after transitioning to some happier thoughts, notice what Isaiah does. Notice how he ends in verse 24, the final verse of 66 chapters, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, 
you might be wondering, does he really end like that? Did he really, did he, did he have to pick that as the final verse? Because we obviously know how to write the Bible better than the Bible writers and the Holy Spirit himself. But yes, he ends like that. Why? One commentator says, nothing else can result if the men on whose ears the great prophecy had fallen with all its music and all its gospel continue to prefer their idols, their swine's flesh, their sitting in graves. They prefer that to so evident to God in so great a grace. In other words, if they make a wretched choice and rather starve than come to God's feast, then what else can you do? But we should at least try because we never know what choice men and women might make. We should at least try. The second reason this section is important, it, the proclamation motivates us to go and proclaim. Motivates us to go and proclaim. In other words, the warnings should make you want to warn others and also share good news. We don't only share the condemnation. We also share the good news as well. And you read the, the story itself. You see how it unfolds here, starting in verse 18. It says it's, there's a time coming to gather all together so that they can see God's glory. Verse 19 says he will set a sign that they will see. And who or what is this sign? It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. It's the one who will draw every people from every hamlet, from every village, from every coastland far away. You notice all these places here, Tarshish, Pool, Lud, places that are named. They're symbols from Isaiah's day of every tribe, tongue, and nation, every place imaginable. They won't just see his glory. They too will become missionaries. They will declare his glory among the nations. They will hear the good news, and then they too will say, here I am, Lord, send me. Verse 20 says they will bring their brothers on any type of transportation they can find, whether it's camels or horses or whatever, whether it's chariots. Chariots were war vehicles, the very, very primitive version of a tank. And the chariots will be transformed into the feet that bring the good news of the gospel. And then God compares them, the, the, the Gentiles from every far-flung coastland, he compares them to Israelites bringing offerings in clean, holy vessels. That's our third theme. It gets shoehorned into the middle of our second subpoint here. The Gentiles are now on equal footing with the Israelites. Verse 21, it says they will become like priests and Levites to serve God. This kingdom of God, it's multi-ethnic, not because of some government mandate or some other forced thing. It's because of the irresistible pull of God's grace. No nation will be able to resist it fully. And then what? Verse 23, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You see, if you know this will happen, <clears throat> how can you not want to be part of it? <laughs> if you know that people are perishing and missing out, it mentions that at the beginning, the end of this section. How can you not want to tell them about the good news, whoever they are, wherever they are? Romans 10 puts it this way, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. As John Piper said in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Because people do not worship the true and living God, missions exist. The beautiful feet that bring the good news, they exist because they want others to know the true joy of worshiping the only one that we were ever supposed to worship in the first place. That leads to the final reason these verses are important. Fourthly, the kingdom proclamation. It reminds us why we worship in the first place. There's some false worship mentioned in verse 17 that we've already covered. And then almost every other verse from there on out talks about worship in one way or another. Seeing, proclaiming God's glory, his fame, his name. You see, our goal in making disciples, in glorifying God, it's to make God's name famous. Not our own name. That's where they went astray at the Tower of Babel. No, it's to make God's name famous throughout the whole earth. And part of that has to be this, that we never stop worshiping. Sometimes when I pray right before the worship service, I asked Tony to do it because he was back there with us this morning. But sometimes when we pray right before, I'll say something like this. Help us remember that we're called to worship before we're called to lead in worship. In other words, goal number one, worship God who made me, who takes care of me, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Still the chief end of man, the chief goal, purpose. Barry Webb ends his magnificent and mercifully short commentary on the book of Isaiah. He ends it like this. The last verse, this one about the dead bodies and all that stuff. It challenges us to never take God's saving work lightly, but to ponder as we shall for all eternity, the greatness of our redemption and the terrible fate from which we have been saved. What else can we do but worship? What else can we do? You know, I don't think Isaiah ever forgot what happened in chapter 6. That he was a man of unclean lips who had dwelt among a people of unclean lips. And that his eyes had seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. He never forgot the burning coal that cleansed him. He never forgot the gratitude he felt when he said, here I am, Lord, send me. He never stopped worshiping, in part because the need to proclaim the Lord's good news never stopped. He knew what it was to tremble at God's word, and he knew that others didn't. And he knew as well that he would be satisfied, he would be comforted when God's kingdom finally came. So he endured every insult along the way. He knew that the Lord would right every wrong, fulfill every promise, proclaim his kingdom to every coast. So Isaiah kept proclaiming the good news until he saw the Lord once again. Must have been scary at times. Last time I checked, it's still a scary world out there too. Nonetheless, here I am, Lord. Send me. Send all of us. Just sustain us. Just stay with us until we see you face to face, until we know peace like a river. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. We have much to learn about you. We are grateful for what we do know. We're grateful for the promises we do have, the ones we grab hold of that we can't seem to forget. Oh, Father, would you make all of your good news to us like that, that we would taste it and see it and ruminate upon it, and that we would savor it until that day when we taste it in full. God be with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.